0: Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. As the kids leave, things get a little more quiet. <laughs> Luke chapter 12. We are in our sermon series. This is number 50, believe it or not, in our series of this wonderful historical account. Holy Spirit superintendent account of the birth, the perfect life, the earthly ministry, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, also wrote the book of Acts to tell us what Jesus continued to do after his ascension through the power and the mission of the Holy Spirit. Luke Acts, one book, two volumes. Luke began, as we know, as Jesus' ministry in Galilee, north of Jerusalem. But you remember back in chapter 9, verse 51, Luke writes these words. When the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face. He, he made a firm resolution, determined. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Luke was letting us know that the divine clock was ticking, that Jesus is approaching the, the consummation of his saving work through his suffering and rejection and crucifixion and ultimate resurrection three days later. Earlier in chapter 9 we saw the mount of transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appeared and was talking to Jesus about his exodus that means his departure was was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem so these later chapters Jesus now is preparing even more pressing in preparing his his appointed apostles the 12 and other disciples other followers to take his message and his mission to the world the t- the clock is ticking The end of his earthly ministry is approaching. And as we see in our text this morning, chapter 12, verse 1, um, the crowds were getting out of control, literally. It says in chapter 12, uh, verse 1, that many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another. We've also been witnessing how the religious establishment has been getting more and more angry, more and more hostile toward Jesus, toward his message, toward his mission, and the end of it, we'll see as Jesus, uh, when we get to the end of Luke, will be crucified. All a part of God's perfect, glorious plan and purpose. It wasn't a surprise. In fact, the apostles, post-death, post-resurrection, will announce in Acts chapter 4, how the people of Jerusalem gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod, King Herod, Governor, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, everyone's involved, to do whatever your hand is a prayer that is talking to God. To do whatever your hand, O Lord, and your plan had predestined to take place. Your perfect plan. So the cross... God's redemptive plan is approaching. The crowds are growing. Hostility is mounting. And Jesus is teaching, mentoring uh, his disciples for what lies ahead for them. And what lies ahead for us, those of us who are faithfully walking with Jesus. So that's where we are picking up our text. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, we'll see three things, I hope. The admonition against hypocrisy, the antidote for fear... And finally, the assurance of the faithful. That's where we are at for those of you that like an outline. I do anyway. So number one, the admonition against hypocrisy. As many of you know, the number, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers in the scriptures, in the Bible that you have in front of you, um, is not in the original text, the original autograph. They were added much later. makes it easy for me to say Luke chapter 12 and not wait an hour or two until you find your place. Verses 1 through 12, right? But sometimes, I don't know why, but sometimes when the numbers were put in uh, place, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. This is one of them. It's not, it's not inspired. It's just, it's just easy for us to follow. Uh, Luke just got finished telling us what happened when a, a certain Pharisee, a religious leader, a Bible thumper, uh, asked Jesus to dine with him. Later in chapter 11, We know that during this shared meal together, Jesus called out the Pharisees and the lawyers. They were scribes. They were uh, the legal experts of the Mosaic law. He called them out because of their hypocrisy, their legalistic approach to life, and their self-righteousness. We saw that last week. And if you remember from last week, Jesus pronounces six woes, W-O-E-S, six woes, pronouncements, against the Pharisees and lawyers. He does three for the Pharisees and three for the lawyers and scribes. He doesn't want to show partiality, so he gives three each. Woe, we said, is one of the strongest verbal pronouncements of judgment and warning that God gives. Gave it in the Old Testament through his prophet, now the ultimate prophet, King Jesus. It's mingled with, the woes are mingled with sorrow and pity and, and righteous indignation. A warning against the destruction that will come upon those who refuse to repent of their sins. That's the way you get the destruction to be averted. You, you repent and you turn. Unfortunately, that is not what happens after Jesus gives the six woes to the Pharisees and the scribes. We ended in verse 53 last week with the response of the religious leaders. Look there with me. Chapter 11, verse 53. As he went away after giving the pronouncement of woes, From there, the scribes and the Pharisees, the lawyers and the Pharisees, began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things. Why? Lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They're not happy. They're not very appreciative of Jesus' loving rebuke and exposure of their sin. In fact, their hatred and hostility only got more and more ramped up. Family, when Jesus exposes something in your life, when Jesus exposes sin in my life, is a sign and an and exposure of, of love and grace and should be received and repented of, but not here. These religious leaders only got more angry. And now Jesus admonishes, he warns his disciples about the hypocrisy that they were so caught up in. Beware, he says verse, uh, in chapter uh, 12, verse 1, beware, 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 beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Remember we said the word hypocrisy comes from the uh, theater, um, denoting a, a mask an actor would wear to impersonate a, a certain given character. A hypocrite is someone who disguises their true nature, their motive, and their feelings behind a false appearance, like a split split screen, right? You have the the one screen is what everyone sees in a public life, and yet you have the other screen is altogether very different. And Jesus likens their hypocrisy to that of leaven. Leaven is yeast, as you know, it makes its way through dough, It, it causes the dough to rise. It increases the mass, but it doesn't increase the weight. Kind of deceiving as it spreads and taints the whole loaf of bread. In the Bible, it is common, it's a common image for something that spreads silently and pervasively. There's good practical uses for yeast, we know that. But Jesus used it in a negative way to describe how the, this hypocrisy can be deceiving, can be destructive as it permeates and grows, not only in, in, in a person, but in a movement. So he talks to his disciples, beware of the leaven. In Matthew chapter sixteen, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says to them, "Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees." And then in, in Matthew sixteen, it says that the disciples understood that Jesus did not tell them to beware of leaven of bread, of the leaven in the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, when you have teachers, when you have leaders who are self-righteous, legalistic, and hypocritical, you have a church full of them. He tells his disciples, be careful, beware. Hypocrisy is an ever-present danger for all of us, for every church. Again, as I said last week, hypocrisy is when a believer says or acts with a holier-than-thou attitude that they are without sin, and then they sin, which you will, and I do, That is the sin of hypocrisy. It's a sin of fraud by which a person says, claims to be something that they are not. It's very dangerous. It could permeate our lives very quickly and permeate the church. Fortunately or unfortunately, you have a pastor, a lead pastor here that has been on both sides of the aisle. I was the the young uh, uh, prodigal who was eating from the pig slop, uh, strung out on addiction. And then I became that legalistic Pharisee and said, look how good I am. That happens, Phil Reichen says, when we try to leave people with the impression that we are active in ministry and faithful in our commitment to Christ when, in fact, our hearts may well be growing colder to the things of God, end quote. He had to beware of not showing in our religious activity something we are not because our hearts are far from God. We think how great we are. Look how good we're doing. And one of the reasons hypocrisy is so foolish and should be just eradicated from the life of the church, life of believers, is that all that is said and done in a secret place will be someday brought out into the light. The dark will be exposed. Look what he says in chapter, two, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing is covered up. It's emphatic, double negative. In other words, no nothing, nothing at all. Right? Don't even think about it. If you think you're able to cover our tracks and hide the truth about our sin, we're just kidding ourselves. See, hypocrites place all their hope in their ability to keep things covered up. And when the things that are concealed become unconcealed or come, come to light, the hypocrite is unmasked. The point is that God knows what one does and everything we do will be exposed. Now, this may happen in life. This may happen in our life. Certain sins we've done, certain sins we're doing, we hope no one finds out. Something we don't want anyone to see. The businessman caught stealing. The married person caught in adultery. The alcoholic or drug addict caught hiding and using, thinking no one's going to find out. The porn addict caught in their addiction. Yet, here in Luke 2, Jesus, not only will what you do will be revealed, but the future tense verb here is used of an eschatological judgment. In other words, an end time judgment. Romans chapter 2 says, on that day, on the day of judgment, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. God knows the heart. Jesus knows the motives and thoughts of the human heart. And one day all will be known. So the sins that don't get exposed in this life, Jesus said will be revealed in the last judgment. Now, the fact that our sins, listen, will be exposed in this life or at the end of this life in judgment should make us make our hair stand up in the back of our neck. I mean, what do you think? What do you feel? What, what, when you contemplate that truth, all our lust, all our lies, and every proud and conceited attitude is laid bare before the God our Creator. Now listen carefully, you only need to fear that truth, that sure, decisive, indisputable guarantee if you don't confess your sins. If you do not confess our sins, we will live in fear of being discovered, but when we confess of our sins, we repent of our sins and trust God to forgive our sins, we can live unafraid and unashamed. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just. He's the faithful one. He's the just one. To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession. Washed. Confessions. we are cleansed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fake that hide behind the mask of hypocrisy will not and cannot perpetuate it forever, and that includes me. Many years ago, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he's the author of Sherlock Holmes, Um, played a prank on five of the most prominent men in England. Five prominent men in England. He sent an anonymous note to each one that simply said this, all is found out, flee at once. (laughs) Within 24 hours, all five men left England. Unconfessed guilt and shame will destroy even the bodies, according to King David. My body wasted away, says in the Psalms. Guilt can make us feel insecure and make us live in fear, because always worried that what we're doing we're gonna be we're gonna be found out, what we're really like and what we've really done. But Proverbs says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy, an admonition against hypocrisy. Look at the antidote for fear. How do we become free from hypocrisy and the secretness of our sins? Well, Jesus will tell us that we need to fear God more than we fear man. Verse 4 I tell you, my friends that's a Greek word of endearment and confidant. Endearment, right? Do not, he says, fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you to whom you should fear. Fear him who after he killed, has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Just four verses, excuse me, verse four through seven, the word fear is mentioned five times, right? Trying to tell us something. Notice what it says. It says to fear God, and then it ends in verse seven that God cares about you. More value than the sparrows. I mean, how do you go from fear God, to God loves and cares, and has immense value that He places on you. I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Jesus teaches disciples that the hypocrites of His day and religious of the day will persecute Him, and that His followers and those who will follow Him and not only will be persecuted as they will crucify Christ, they will also kill His followers. Jesus says, don't fear those who kill you, but fear the one who can cast you into eternity in a place called hell. God has the final say. He has the power and the authority to your eternal, not just temporal, your eternal destiny. For he is Lord even over hell itself. That's what Jesus is saying. No matter what you see in the news, no matter what you see in the movies, hell is not Satan's playground. It's his prison. The word for hell here, Jesus uses Gehenna. It's a valley outside of Israel. It's a ravine of of, of smoking refuse, a a cursed place of perpetual burning. And the Bible uses this God-forsaken valley to describe the torments of hell as an everlasting fire or an everlasting reality. Some say, oh, come on, pastor, this is 2023. Really? No such thing, no such reality. Well, I'm gonna go with Jesus on this, He certainly believed and taught more about it than anyone else in Scripture. Jesus openly and plainly taught that God will banish unrepented sinners to a place called hell. And because he has the authority and has the power and dominion over all our destinies, he is to be feared. So Jesus is saying, you know, the worst thing that someone can do to you, I mean, you know, it's just to kill you. And you're saying, really, okay, you know, my goal in life today is, is to stay alive. It's the big E on the chart, right? I want to breathe, that's on the top of the list. And Jesus is saying, uh, you know, uh, is there something worse than death, Lord Jesus? He's like, yes, it's worse than death, and that's hell. I mean, that's not easy. We're all trying to stay alive. The point is, God alone should be ultimately revered, the one we stand in awe of. So if you could see your life from eternity, from the perspective of eternity, we would say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The point of the text is clear distinction between this life that could be taken from you, from those who persecute you, and life to come in eternity with God. For the believer, that's an entranceway into Glory have a funeral this Friday, Doc Clark. Glory, home, tombs empty. So he says so fear the one who has the final destiny of your soul. Don't fear man. One of, I don't know if you ever heard of Ed Welch, but Ed Welch wrote, wrote a bunch of books dr edward welch he wrote a book one of the books he wrote he wrote on depression addiction one of the things he wrote was a, a call, book called when people are big and god is small when people are big and god is small overcoming peer pressure codependency and the fear of man he writes this kind of long but bear with me he says fear in the biblical sense includes being afraid of someone but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people or needing people. We spend too much time wondering what others may, we spend too much time wondering what others may have thought about our outfits or the comment we made at a small group setting. We see opportunities to testify about Jesus, but we avoid it. We are more concerned about looking stupid, a fear of people, than we are acting sinfully, fear of the Lord. We fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. We fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. These reasons have one thing in common. They see people as bigger that is more powerful and significant than God. And out of fear that, cause, that creates in us, we give other people the power and right to tell us what to think, to feel, and to do, end quote. Ouch. If that wasn't enough, the massive interest, he writes, in self-esteem and self-worth exist. the massive interest in self-esteem and self-worth exists, Because it is trying to help us with a real problem. The problem is that we really are not okay. There is no reason why we should feel great about ourselves. We truly are deficient. The meager props of the self-esteem teaching will eventually collapse as people realize that their problem is much deeper. The problem is, in part, our nakedness before God. The antidote to the fear of man is the fear of God. Now, when you hear the word fear of God, when you hear the word fear of God, don't think of of, of a child who has this alcoholic, raging father, cruel and bizarre, unpredictable, hot-tempered, erratic, unpredictable, wreaking havoc on the home in his anger. That's not what it means. That's the the kind of fear that is spoken here. The fear of the Lord as covenant people is a joyful fear, a positive fear, a wonder and awe of who God is. You see, fear in and of itself, generally speaking, is captivates you, but it could be negative, it could be positive. If you have a fear of snakes, as my sweet wife does, or spiders, or heights, which I do, you see a snake, it captivates you. The other day I was in the airport, and there was a way to take an escalator, I think it was was somewhere in Florida, Escalator, and you go from floor, the first floor to the fourth floor. But I didn't realize that after you pass the second floor, you are, you are hanging over three floors. So I'm getting on this elevator. I'm going past the first floor, all good. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm like, I'm suspending in air. And let me tell you what I did. I grabbed the escalator and closed my eyes, waiting for it to stop captivated, at that moment it's dominating my heart. Where'd that snake go? I'm not even going outside, not for a week. You see, in God-centered, healthy, dominating fear, your heart is riveted, your mind is captivated, you are constantly thinking of him, the God of love, the God of redemption. It doesn't terrorize you, it frees you. So the fear of the Lord is being dominated, captivated, under the control of the God who loves you. The positive, relational fear of the Lord is a life centered on God. It produces joy and awe and wonder before the majesty and the greatness of who God is and what God has done, what God has done in the gospel. For the Christian, the fear and awe of God drives us to him, not away from him. It draws us to his care and his compassion. In fact, what you fear can actually show you what you're living for. If you you need to be... Respected. If you need to be uh, in order to feel valued, you need to have influence. You need to have uh, to, to, to feel valuable and worthwhile, you need to be somebody and you're working hard at get everybody to see you a certain way. What you fear more than anything is that to not happen. Lose a job. Be financially struggling. Have someone not like you. It doesn't just hurt, it crushes. It's not just bad news, it's devastating news. If you trace your fears, you will find what you are trusting and what your heart wants most because it is the thing that you fear the most losing. The most of losing. The fear of the Lord, again, dominated, controlled, captivated under the care and love of God because God's a good God. And the only way to get it It is to be unquestionably sure to know that although God knows a dark, ugly truth, I'll be exposed before him. He's still not going to hurt me. In spite of my sin and my flaws, he's not going to condemn me. It's to know his love and forgiveness. Listen to this passage, Psalm 130, verse 3. Okay? Psalm 130, verse 3. The joyful awe of God. Listen, we got to understand the gospel. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities. In other words, if you, O Lord, should point out every single sin in my life. O Lord, who can stand? The answer is no one. But, verse 4, chapter of Psalm 130, verse 4. But, with you, Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Hold on. If you, O Lord, should mock my iniquities, O Lord, who will be able to stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be feared. The the more I'm forgiven, the more I should fear you, isn't it? The more I'm afraid you're going to hurt me, and scared you're going to be angry with me. Therefore, the more I should fear you, no. The more I experience your love and your forgiveness, the more I fear you. You see, the the fear of the Lord that is positive, that is biblical, is heightened by love and forgiveness because in the gospel, God knows and loves us. He knows and loves you. He delights in us because of Jesus Christ and in turn, we want to love him all the more. We want to delight him more and more and more than anything and everyone in the entire universe. It's not being afraid he's going to beat me or condemn me or hurt me. It's being fear and awe of his majesty because he loves me despite me. He forgives me even though I sin. He cares for me even though he should abandon me. Look at verse 6. Are, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why even the heirs of your head are numbered? Fear not. You are more value than many sparrows. Sparrows are cheap food source in that day. Uh, little birds worth really next to nothing. You could buy five of them, it says, for two pennies. I, I don't know how do you divide two. I'm like, well, how do you buy five for two? What they would do is literally, you'd buy for a penny, you would get two doves, two, two sparrows. And if you bought four of them, they would throw one in for free. That's how cheap they were in those days. And despite the cheapness of these insignificant birds, not even one of them escapes God's attention. God knows everything down to the very last hair on your head. Now I know this doesn't apply to everyone, but I did read this week, the average person has 100,000 hairs on their head. I looked it up, 100,000. Some have six, but we're talking about the average person. (laughs) Every one of them known of God in the whole universe. Every hair. Talk about his omniscience. Divine omniscience over all things. God then takes his immeasurable knowledge and his concern for the sparrows and says, look what it says, we are far more precious, more valuable than many sparrows. He uses these illustrations of pennies and sparrows and, and hair on the head to bring home Jesus' singular warning to fear God, verse five, with a double assurance of the Father's concern for his disciples. Now notice with me, which is interesting, in verse five, it says, fear him, okay? Fear him. Sense of reverence, a sense of awe, eternal destiny is in his hands. Even the hypocrites, even the legalists, even the religious leaders, he is sovereign, he is omnipotent, he is omniscient, infinite power, infinite authority. Fear him. And then in verse 7, he says, Don't fear him. Fear not. Contradiction? No. Absolutely not. Jesus is saying it is the same God who holds the power of hell, the power of judgment, who also knows and loves me and cares for me. Far from getting ready to throw me into hell, he forgives me and watches over me and he keeps me safe and cares for me. Knowing God's love, knowing God's care, knowing God's forgiveness and acceptance because of the gospel should bring comfort to all our fears. Therefore, do not fear. Don't be anxious about how God will care for you. God knows our needs. God is aware of our situation as we face rejection for our stand for Christ. We, they, will be rescued from danger. And it may not be in this life. (laughs) Some of them will be martyred. But eternal life waits for us who have trusted him. You see it? We stand in fear and awe of the authority and judgment of God, and yet we are not afraid of him because he cares and loves us. Verse 7. That's the antidote. That's the antidote for the fear of man. Holy reverence that's consistent of trembling before his authority, his holiness, his goodness, and rejoicing in his forgiveness, love, and care for us. I read this week, maybe you read it, uh, somebody in Arizona, uh, a a, a Christian brother standing on a street corner, proclaiming the gospel, got shot. He's in critical. Imagine just opening up the Bible, and, and, and I'm not a street preacher, but getting shot. That just happened. The admonition against hypocrisy, the antidote for fear, fear God, and finally the assurance of the faithful. Now, this verse in verse 8 should make us all stand in awe of God and the awe of Jesus and declare him. Look what it says in verse 8. And I tell you, these are the words of our Savior, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. What Jesus is clearly and explicitly saying is that he is not some, simply some Bible teacher, some in, you know, itinerant preacher, some good and moral man teaching his followers the path to a good life. When he used the title the son of man, we've talked about this before, he's announcing that he himself is the one that Daniel spoke about in chapter 7. He is God, the creator, who comes into the world, who is worshiped with all glory, power, and dominion. He will judge the world and establish his eternal kingdom. Daniel 7, 14. In Matthew 26, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, arrest Jesus during his mock trial. The high priest said to Jesus these words, I adjure you. By the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God, Son of the same nature, God? Are you God in the flesh? Jesus said to him, you have said so. In other words, you got that right. But I tell you, Jesus says, from now on you will see the Son of Man, Daniel 7, seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He's speaking Daniel 7. The high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he used the title of the Son of Man. God in the flesh, coming, being worshipped and having all dominion, authority, and power and establishing an eternal kingdom. And to further his claims as being God the judge in the flesh, he says, The acknowledgement or denial of who he is, his person and his work, will be before the angels of God. Now, in Matthew he says, before my Father in heaven. So any Jewish reader would understand when Jesus says the angels of God, that uh, it's the final judgment when God will judge. The angels will come as witnesses as God judges the world. Everybody would understand that at that moment. So Jesus is painting this, this final judgmental scene judgment scene and he's saying you acknowledge me before men you will be acknowledged in the final judgment you deny me before men and you'll be not denied in the final judgment Jesus is making himself the benchmark of either your acceptance or rejection in the final judgment he is linking what he'll say about us at the final judgment to what we say about him on this earth let that sink in to acknowledge him is to say, you are Lord. You are you are Savior. I am committed. My life surra- is, is centered on you. To live as Christ, to die as gain. The word of assurance being, being acknowledged by Jesus is so applicable for us today. As the culture around us becomes more and more secular and more and more anti-God, anti-the Word of God, followers of the Lord Jesus are going to be confronted with whether or not we will take a stand for our faith. Persecution is here to some degree, but it's going to get, I believe, a whole lot worse. If there's anyone that knows about persecution, it's the Apostle Peter. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sakes, Jesus' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them. Of who? Those who cause you to suffer for righteousness. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. I'm set apart for Jesus, that's holy. I'm set apart for him. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So in no way are we called to take a stand, give testimony, acknowledge Jesus, his person, and his work of the cross, in an arrogant, hypocritical, that's what he's talking about, a self-righteous way. Jesus already spoke about that. But we must stand firm in our witness. We must do it in a gracious way, a gentle way, and a respectful way, but we must stand in and around all circumstances that Jesus Christ is Lord, he's my Savior, and the word of God has the final authority in my life. Are you willing to say that? I saw a video clip this week of Bill Mahar's, you probably know him, um, just mocking, he, he does that all the time, I, I won't even say it, but anyway, just mocking and completely disrespecting someone who said, I don't think we should kill babies in the womb. He said, I believe that marriage is a covenant. And the scriptures shape his worldview, mocking him? I'm thinking, I believe all those things. So here's the question. When that challenge comes, when that challenge comes, whether it's high school, whatever school, college, graduate school, work, family relationships, someone in the community, somewhere in the community, some other public occasion, where will our allegiance be? Are you going to stand with Jesus with the scripture or are you going to give in to the culture? Is your allegiance going to be with Jesus acknowledging him and his authority the authority of his word or would you and I give in to what's right around us? If we do not confess Christ we deny him. If we deny him he'll deny us. It's fair, it's frightening but it leaves no room for middle ground. He doesn't give us a neutral position. Well you don't have to acknowledge me you don't have to deny me you kind of just You know, stay middle of the road. Option off the table. Gentle, respectful. Yes, family. There's a time we're gonna say, you know what? The Bible is my my because God is the creator of the universe and gave me His word, revealed to us the truth. That's my that's my worldview. Scripture. Be like you crazy. Okay, whatever. Persecution, it's coming. He goes on to say, verse 10, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, okay? Now, if you notice in the text, we are, we are Trinitarians here, but there, there's, a, there's a sense in which Jesus says uh, there's something particular about blaspheming the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In verses four through seven, notice with me, in verses four through seven, Jesus speaks of God the Father, in verses 8 through 10, Jesus speaks about himself, the Son of Man. God the Father, God the Son. Verse 10, he speaks about the Holy Spirit. Again, Trinitarian here, right? One God, three persons. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We, we agree with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, same substance, equal in power, and glory, end quote. Co-equal, co-eternal. So why is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the one thing that won't be forgiven, yet all other blasphemies will be forgiven? That's the question. All of us have blasphemed, <laughs> spoke profanities concerning God, concerning Jesus at some point in our lives. Hopefully it was before we came to faith. Maybe we uttered the word God in the wrong way and just demeaning his name and profaning Jesus. People use his name like it's going out of style, Right? Even the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, blaspheming the name of Christ, murdering Christians, yet he was forgiven. Not only was he forgiven, he was used mightily to write a lot of Scripture and plant multiple churches. The Apostle Peter, if you remember, he didn't deny Jesus once. He denied Him three times. And yet he was what? Completely restored. You see, in Matthew and in Mark... The teaching of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit appears around the sin of attributing the mighty work of God to the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about blasphemy the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, There's no forgiveness of that. He said it in Luke chapter 11, we see the same thing. They were saying, You know what? You are delivering people, and the power of God is coming, but not through the power of God, but through what? Beelzebub. Remember that? That helps us understand what Jesus is saying in this context. What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? That will be the one sin that will not be forgiven. Um, Back in the summertime, we did a a series here, I think six-part series, um, and basically it was called Because You Asked. We asked the congregation, send us some questions, and we'll walk through the questions, and then we'll preach on topics that you want to hear uh, about. So one of them came in, and it was the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, if you remember. And in that time that we spent together that Sunday morning, if you remember, we set the Holy Spirit's role of convicting us of our sins, revealing to us who God is through Scripture, illuminating the truth in many different ways. That he He is the Spirit of truth. So we ended with saying that his job, his role, his function is therefore revelation, revealing to us who God is, conviction, showing us our sin, illumination, showing us the beauty of Christ, and then his work of regeneration, he brings the application of the personal work of Jesus, his Tony work to our souls. So he convicts, he, he reveals, brings illumination, brings regeneration, and application of the salvation that Jesus has promised and has done for us on the cross. Therefore, a blasphemy to speak evil against the Holy Spirit, listen, is to deny and reject the manifestating work of the saving, redeeming intervention of God. It's not only our speech, it's, it's a hardened heart and a hardened attitude toward God and an unrelenting opposition to what God is doing through his spirit as he reveals the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one who hardens himself against God What God is doing to redeem and to rescue and to save places themselves in the, you know, beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. They don't want anything to do with it. The ESV study Bible says this. I think they get it right. It says this. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the persistent, unrepentant resistance against the work of the Holy Spirit and his message concerning Jesus Jesus says that will not be forgiven. The person who persists in hardening his heart against God, against the work of the Holy Spirit, and against the provision of Christ as Savior is outside the reach of God's provision for forgiveness and salvation. Christians often worry, listen, Christians often worry that they have committed this sin, but such a concern is itself evidence of an openness to the work of the Spirit, end quote. Have I, have I committed that sin? I don't want to commit. That, uh, the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Blasphemy of the Spirit is a continual resistance, rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit as he points to, reveals us, to us, the person of Christ, God in the flesh, and the work of the cross and the atonement. If you persistently do that until you close your eyes in this life, there's no forgiveness. And maybe some of you here have been resisting the Holy Spirit. And know it's time to bow your knee to King Jesus. You've been hearing it over and over. Today's the day of your salvation. Turn, release, relinquish authority and control over your life and put your hands in Jesus. Verse 11 and 12 to close. And then they will bring you before the synagogue, the rulers, authorities. Don't be anxious about how you defend yourself or what you should say. Verse 12, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you might ought to say. When you and I take our stand with Jesus gently, quietly, respectfully, not quietly, gently and respectfully, we're promised that the Holy Spirit will teach us, reveal to us what we ought to say. It doesn't mean we shouldn't study God's word. It doesn't mean we shouldn't study and read the scriptures and prepare. It means that when the day comes when you have to give an account, the Holy Spirit will show up mightily and give you what you need to say to stand with Jesus, to stand with his word, and to make an acknowledgement before man Jesus Christ is Lord. The scripture is my authority. It wasn't very long after Jesus died, rose and ascended that the apostles were dragged into court. Dragged before the religious leaders. Peter and John arrested Acts 4, temple police hauled them in before the Sanhedrin. Under under the threat of great opposition, it would be tempted. They could be tempted to be afraid and to shrink back. But God shows up mightily and fulfills his promise. And every time the apostles appeared before the magistrate, before the, uh, the authorities, it gave them an opportunity to preach the gospel. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see it all over, especially with, with Paul. Paul's like, uh, they're going to beat you and drag you to court. Okay, I'll go because I'm going to tell them about Jesus. What do you have to say to yourself? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Like, no, that's not what we're asking you. He always, always wants to talk about Jesus. Fearlessly in the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. And if we're honest, let's be honest just for a moment. Why do we shrink back from sharing our faith? You know, some people say, you know what, I don't really feel equipped. I don't know enough scripture. Okay. How do we overcome the, the, the sinful fear of man and become more bold? Maybe, maybe we need to read the Bible more, get, get answers to our questions. Maybe we need to pick up a good book on, on, on how to share your faith. There's a material, great material out there. We need to get beyond that. But I think much of our fears are because we fear man more than we fear God. That I fear man more than I fear God. Our courage to share our faith comes from an honest, open confession of our sins, being humble about who we really are, how much we uh, depend upon the Lord and his forgiveness. Fearing God more than fearing others, trusting the watchful care of our Father, knowing that Jesus will defend us at the final judgment, and we are to depend upon the work of the Holy Spirit. then we would be people who will acknowledge Jesus before man and not be afraid. As the band comes up, let me close with this, family. Now listen carefully. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for any sinner the Spirit of God is working on who truly repents. Even if you're here this morning and you repeatedly denied the name of Christ and you resisted the work of the Spirit... Today is the day of salvation. Stop resisting, but believe the gospel. You can and will be forgiven. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Is Jesus the Lord and Savior of life? If not, if you are here, you are resisting the Holy Spirit, you're blaspheming. Does that mean hell is your final destination? Unfortunately, yes, but God loves you. God cares about you. God values you. You're his creation. Therefore, he sent his only son to live that perfect life you could never live, to die the death you should have died so that you can receive forgiveness, be brought into his family, be adopted as children, brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God. That's the promise. Will you trust him? As long as you're still breathing, there's hope. Don't run or hide from your hurts. Don't run and hide from your struggles. Run to Jesus for cleansing and for help. He is to be revered. He he is to be revered as the one who has our final destiny in his hands, but he's also to be revered because we can rest in his love and his forgiveness. Will you take your stand with him and make him known? Let's just bow our heads for a moment. Maybe someone here has just been resisting and it's time. The Spirit of God has brought conviction and it's time to turn from being your own Savior and Lord to trust Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. Trusting His finished work on the cross of the forgiveness of your sins. Calling out to Him as the only Savior. And Father, there are some of us here, and I include myself, that The fear of man can, at times, be dominant in our lives. Lord, we want to fear you. You love, forgive, care for us. Help us not to fear man. Help us to revere and rest in you, in your sovereignty and your goodness, and in your forgiveness. May we be a people who are quick to declare how good, glorious you truly are. Loosen our lips. Give us wisdom, Holy Spirit, as we make Christ known.